Well, welcome, River City. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. Grateful to get to join you for worship this morning. If you are new or visiting, especially want to say welcome to you. Uh, we'd love to get to know you. I'd love to have you get plugged into the community here. And like Becky was saying, small groups is one of the best ways to do that, just to build relationships and friendships and, and to be known and to get known. And so I uh, would love to have you check one of those out. Excited as well to begin diving into the Gospel of John with you this week. If you were here last week, we started our series in the Gospel of John by looking at the very last couple of verses in the whole book. And we saw John's purpose and point and how he's telling us all he's telling us that, so that we might believe something about Jesus and, and have life in him. And as we began our series last week, we, we saw as well how, like the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the, the book of John kind of functions in, a, in, some, in some ways like a documentary about Jesus. It tells us a little bit about the, the story of his life and ministry and if you read through the Gospels, one of the things that you pretty quickly come to find, one of the things that you come to notice pretty quickly, is that, is that John's documentary about Jesus is very different from the other, the other, two, the other three documentaries. It, it's unique. I, I jokingly said last week you kind of think about it as like the maverick Top Gun Gospel, right? Like it goes a different direction than all of the other ones go. It's, it's unique. And we saw how while 90% of the stories in Mark, they appear in Matthew or John, uh, 90% of John's gospel is unique to John. He, he ignores all kinds of things the other three focus on. He gives us a bunch of new material, behind-the-scenes footage, right? Like stuff from the deep archives, right, that, that the other ones didn't include. He includes a bunch of new things that we see about Jesus. And we talked to, last week about how a big part of the reason why those differences are there has a lot to do with the reality that, that John wrote his gospel about 20 or 30 years after the other three were written. Most commentators, theologians, uh, based on a number of factors, would date the other three Gospels somewhere between 50 and 60 AD. John's Gospel is written somewhere between 80 and 90 AD, so a lot later, near the end of the first century. And we as well uh, are, are pretty confident that John wrote that book while he was located in the city of Ephesus. And by the late first century, Ephesus had kind of become the, like the hub of the Christian world. And so what that means is that the audience that John is writing to, they almost certainly would have had access to and been familiar with the other three gospel writers' accounts about Jesus. And in fact, it's likely that a significant portion of John's readers that he has in mind are second-generation Christians, people who grew up uh, in, with parents that, who believed in Jesus and who told them stories about him. Many of those parents might have been first-generation people who met Jesus, who knew him, who encountered him, or, or who came to faith, some of the first people to come to faith. And so these readers of John's gospel, they've grown up hearing all the stories about Jesus. And so John's not trying to just rehash everything for a fourth time. He's not trying to just like give his personal take on the different stories, the different things that happen. Instead, John's trying to help us see the whole point of his documentary is not so much focused on what Jesus did, but is on who Jesus is. You see, John is writing to an audience that knows enough about Jesus to be familiar with him, even enough maybe to say that they believe in him, but whose lives are not being transformed by him. And so much of John's gospel throughout his letters, he's painting this picture and he's inviting people to see that to truly know Jesus is to be changed by him. And if your life is not being transformed by him, then you don't know him. 
And John is graciously inviting, calling us to consider. Have we trusted? Have we actually believed in Jesus? Or do we just know some things about him? You see, John's writing this gospel to wake up a people to the eternity-altering magnitude of who Jesus claimed he was and proved himself to be. So that maybe a, a head-level knowledge about Jesus might become a heart-level faith belief in him that transforms people's lives both now and for eternity. See, but John's gospel isn't just written for people who don't believe in Jesus yet. It's written for all of us because here's the reality. All of us need a bigger vision of Jesus than we have. All of us need a bigger vision of Jesus than we have because the truth is, is that the, the, the size of our vision of Jesus is inextricably linked with our love and devotion to him. And if Jesus is beautiful and spectacular and captivating to you, then it will fuel a life of worship and devotion to him. But if Jesus is small, if he is, there are true things about him, but he is functionally insignificant, then what happens is you live a life that has no devotion to him. And so the size of his glory and splendor, us seeing him rightly, that changes all of us. And as we take a look at the beginning of John's gospel this morning, what we're going to see in this picture that John is painting for us about who Jesus is, it's a picture, it's a vision of him that could not get any bigger. It is cosmically huge, and yet it is deeply personal. It functions kind of like the opening movement to a grand symphony. It's meant to grab our attention, draw us into the story. It's, it's a, it's a, it's, it gives us glimpses of all the things John's going to flesh out later throughout the book. And it's a vision of Jesus that sets the stage for everything else that John is trying to tell us about who Jesus really is. And I can't wait to show it to you this morning. It is so good. And so with that in mind, let's pray. We'll dive into God's Word as we begin our study in John. God, thanks so much for our time together in your Word this morning. We just we want to come to you humbly as we always should, asking God that you might captivate not just our minds or that you might, that you might not just like grow our head-level knowledge about you, God, but you might captivate our hearts and attention, that we might see you for the glorious, spectacular, cosmic King of the universe you are. And that in seeing you rightly, Jesus, we might give our lives back to you in faith. God, giving ourselves for your glory. And so God, for any of that to happen, we need you to do it in us. We need your spirit to make our hearts see and to give us eyes to see the truth about you. Help it to captivate our hearts so that we might love you wholeheartedly, God. And we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, John's gospel begins this way. Some of the most poetic and lofty language about God and about Jesus and all the Bible begins this way. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made, and in him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And there was a man sent from God whose name was John. That's John's talking about John the Baptist, not John himself in, this, in that moment. And he came as a witness to testify concerning the light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. 
For the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children not born of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. And this word became flesh, and made its dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. And out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. Man, there's so much in here this morning. We could do like a whole series on these couple of verses. But like I mentioned in the beginning, John's a big part of what John is trying to do throughout his documentary about Jesus is he's trying to help people have a bigger vision of Jesus. And man, you read those couple of first verses and what you see clearly is that John's vision of Jesus is one that could not get any bigger. Mark begins his documentary about Jesus starting with the account of Jesus' earthly ministry. Luke opens his gospel about Jesus, his documentary about Jesus by the story of Jesus' birth. Matthew traces Jesus' family line all the way back to the forefather of the Jewish people, Abraham. And yet John's documentary about Jesus begins farther back than all of those way farther back all the way back at the very beginning of all things verse one opens up with this language in the beginning those three words should function like a direct hyperlink in your mind back to genesis chapter one the very first words of the whole bible you see and john is saying that to really understand who jesus is you can't just start with his earthly ministry or with the story of his birth or even with the hair his family heritage you have to start with creation itself because he was there in fact his story begins before every other story moreover his story is the beginning point of every other one see verse 1 goes on john says in the beginning was the word And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. John refers here to Jesus as the Word, and we'll come back to the significance of that language in just a minute because it's really important and it's really significant. But what you need to see first is that John is making some incredibly profound claims about who Jesus is. Not only is he saying that Jesus was there with God at the creation of the universe, he's saying that Jesus is that creator God himself. That he's not just a wise prophet or a great teacher, someone sent with wisdom. That he is the divine author of the universe. That he is the creator king of everything. 
One commentator puts it this way, John intends that the whole of his gospel shall be read in light of this verse. The deeds and words of Jesus are the deeds and words of God himself. And that brings us back to the significance of that word, word. In the Greek, it's a, a, a Greek word called logos or logos. And John is intentionally using a term there that carried an incredible amount of philosophical weight and significance, both for a a Jewish audience and a Greco-Roman one. You see, for someone coming from a Jewish background, God's word was synonymous with the exercise of his power and authority, with his sovereign authority over everything. In Genesis chapter 1, creation begins with God speaking the universe into existence. Psalm 33 verse 6 says it this way, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, their starry host, from the breath of his mouth. But it's not just creation. Throughout the Old Testament, we see God's word bringing about judgment and destruction, healing, revelation, redemption, salvation. God's word is synonymous with the exercise of his sovereign will and authority. But it wasn't just a Jewish audience for whom the word would have resonated See, in Greek philosophy, that word logos, it was a term that referred, that, that Greek philosophers, they used to, they used to, to refer to that, it referred to the impersonal force that brought about the unity and order in the universe. You see, the Greek philosophers, they looked out at the world and out at nature, and they saw incredible order and harmony, and they saw this, this level of design in the midst of some of those things. And, and what they saw is that they said that there has to be something behind all of that. There has to be some logic underneath it, some cosmic principle, some reason why everything is the way that it is. There's got to be some absolute unchanging truth behind it all. Famous 20th century composer Leonard Bernstein, he echoed those sentiments when when he made comments about Beethoven's famous Fifth Symphony. He says it this way, Beethoven leaves us with this feeling that something is right in the world. There's something that checks throughout, that follows its own law consistently, something you can trust, something that won't let you down. And the Greeks and Bernstein, they would have never talked about that thing, that reason, that explanation behind it all. They would never describe that as God, but that's what they're talking about. You see, in calling Jesus the Word, the Logos, John is heralding to both Jews and Greeks that Jesus is the author of and the power that brought about everything they know. He is the embodiment of God's sovereign will and authority. He's the logic. He is the reason. He is the why behind everything. You see, but in calling Jesus the word, John is not just trying to communicate something about who Jesus is. He's also trying to communicate something about what Jesus does. Namely that as the word of God, he reveals the truth about God to us. You see, you can observe a lot about someone. You can find out a lot about someone by observing them, by watching what they do, by seeing them from afar. But you cannot actually know someone until they speak to you. You see, words, they express your mind and your will and your emotions and your character and your heart. You see, a person's words are the clearest and ultimate revelation of who they are. Your words, they they reveal your identity 
And so in calling Jesus the word, what John is saying is that Jesus is not merely, not only as, as crazy as this sounds, he's not just the God of the universe. He's not just the author, creator, power by which it all came to be. But he is also, as God, he is the perfect, supreme revelation about who God is and what he is like. He is God's ultimate self-disclosure. And so to know Jesus is to know God. In fact, he's the only way you can. And therefore, to not know Jesus is to not know God altogether. See, and that's what John is getting at throughout the rest of these verses in the prologue. In a number of different ways, he's trying to help us to see that Jesus is this ultimate revelation about God. John goes on repeatedly to refer to Jesus as the light. Verse 4, he says that the light of all mankind. Verse 5, the light shines in the darkness. Verse 9, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. You see, light is this metaphor that John uses repeatedly throughout his gospel. We're going to see it coming up over and over and over again in the coming months. And John uses it in two ways. One, he uses it as a contrast to darkness and evil. But here and in other places throughout his gospel, he uses it in reference to revelation. You see, light is what enables you to see. Without the light, you can't see anything. You can feel around and you can kind of learn something about your environment, but you can't actually see the real truth about it. I don't know if any of you have ever rented an Airbnb and you get there late at night, right? And all the lights are off and you're just like running into crap because like you cannot figure out like where is the light switch? Someone's recently remodeled it. They thought the best place was like inside the sink or something like that to put the light switch and you can't figure it out and you just keep running into everything. You need the light to be able to see you see and that's the way it is with god on our own we are mired in darkness we're like blind people who cannot see we are unable to see god clearly and unable to know the word truly and jesus is the light that shines so that we might see the truth about god about the world about ourselves great missionary theologian leslie newbegin he put it this way Jesus is the true light that shines on every human being. There is no other light that enables us to see things as they really are. And things really are as they are shown to be in the light of Jesus. Because he is the word through whom they all came to be. You see, Jesus is not just the word that tells us the truth about God. He is the light that shows us it as well. He demonstrates it to us so that we might see it. What's even more incredible, John says, is that he doesn't do that from a distance. He's not just like a distant star, a distant star, a far-off sun that, that's shedding its light just generally, that we have to look at and study through a telescope. No, this God-revealing light sought out a world that was lost in darkness. He came near so that you and I might see the truth up close, personal, that we might see it and touch it. You see, verse 14 says it this way, that this word, it became flesh and dwelled among us. I've always loved how Eugene Peterson paraphrased this in the message. He says it this way, that the word became flesh and blood and moved into our neighborhoods. God comes near in the person of Jesus. Literally that phrase dwelled among us, it translates this phrase that literally means pitched his tabernacle or, or set up his tent, 
It's a phrase that would have immediately called to mind the tabernacle or the tent that God instructed his people to set up in the wilderness while they were journeying to the promised land. It was the place by which his presence came to meet with his people. And they saw a cloud of God's presence physically come down so they might see God's presence among them. And what John is saying is that God has chosen to dwell amongst his people in a way that transcends that altogether, a way that is altogether more personal See, in Jesus, God takes on flesh. He becomes a human, someone you can see and feel and touch and talk with and hear and know. Paul writes in Colossians 1.15 that he is the visible image of the invisible God. And that is significant for a million reasons we do not have time to get into this morning. We're going to come back to these verses again around Christmas time because there's at least a couple of sermons that need to get preached about that. But for now, what I want you to see is that in the incarnation, in God becoming a human, what we see clearly is that God is not just too content to reveal to us ideas about himself. He wants us to know him personally. The God of the universe is not a principle. He's not a concept. He's not an abstract thing. He has made himself known so that we might know him personally. And when you see Jesus for who he really is, John tells us what you get is you see the glorious, gracious truth about God. That the Old Testament was always pointing us to. Verse 14 says it this way, for we have seen his glory the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 16 continues on. For out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. See, John's not saying that the Old Testament and the law was, was bad and that Jesus is good. Instead, what he's saying is that both of those things were these gracious acts by which God reveals something about himself to us. If you were with us a couple of years ago when we went through the Ten Commandments, one of the things I tried to show you every week as we walk through those is that the Ten Commandments aren't just showing us what God wants for our lives. They are meant to reveal a picture about who he is. They show us his nature and character. They show us the things that matter to him. Him, what is true about him? And see, throughout the Old Testament law and its requirements, God is graciously giving us a glimpse about his nature and character. And what John is saying is that what you see dimly through those things, and that in Jesus, you get the whole picture. You get the clearest view. The shadows are gone. In Jesus, you see God for who he is. But more than that, we see him perfectly fulfilling all of the requirements of the law in our place so that you and I might not just know about him, but that we might be known by him, that we might have a relationship with him. It's grace on top of grace already given. You see, so John is painting for us this cosmically huge vision of Jesus, one that is beautiful and spectacular and captivating the one who began before time began itself, 
the one who is prophesied and promised, the one who weaves every other story together. It finds its beginning and its fulfillment in the person and the work of Jesus. And in case you missed the point John is trying to make through the first 17 verses, he sums it all up for us with a puts a bow on it in verse 18. He says it as clearly and succinctly as he can. Verse 18 he says, no one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen him fully. No one has ever known him completely. And yet the one and only son who is is himself God and is in closest relationship to the Father has made him known. Jesus is the eternal creator God. He was with God in the beginning because he was God in the beginning. And in Jesus, God is making himself known to us. He is telling us what he is like. And as the light, he's showing us the truth about himself. And in him, we see this glorious reality of God's grace and grace and truth that is made known to us. And it's only through knowing him that you can have a relationship with the one true God, the creator of all life and light and truth. And to know him is to know God. You see, but John is not just telling us in these opening verses about Jesus. He's not just telling us something about him. He also is giving us a glimpse into what he's going to do throughout the rest of the book. He's going to show us not just the truth about Jesus, but how people respond to him. See, because the reality is you have to do something with John's claims about Jesus. He doesn't claim to be just a wise teacher just a good man, a great example. See, Jesus claims to be the author of the universe himself. And you have to do something with that. And what we see in John, the beginning of these verses, is that there's only two ways you can really respond to Jesus. And both of them are in the passage. The first is this, you can reject him. Verses 10 and 11, they actually show us two ways that people reject Jesus. They look a little different, but they're really the same. Verse 11, he says it this way, that he came to which to that was what his own, but his own did not receive him. That phrase, did not receive him, that's the very polite version of saying they rejected him. Right? But the reality is, is, that, is that God's own people rejected him. The way that they did that was anything but polite. You're going to see throughout John's gospel that they hated him. And they plotted to kill and eventually did murder him. You see, they were overtly hostile towards Jesus. And some people today reject Jesus overtly like that. The idea that Jesus might be the divine author of the universe, the source of all light and light and truth, the one who gets to decide the way things are and the way that they should be, the one who says what is right and true and good and what is not. And for many people, they just refuse that reality. They see it as narrow-minded or oppressive, that it stifles or limits their own self-expression or their own desires, that anyone who believes what John says about Jesus isn't just wrong, but they're evil and oppressive. So some people overtly reject Jesus, and yet John shows us a more subtle way in which oftentimes people reject him. Verse 10 says it this way, he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Or as the other way to translate verse 5 puts it, the light shined in the darkness, and the darkness did not understand it. You see, some people reject Jesus outright, but others reject him by failing to understand and recognize him, to comprehend the reality about who 
You see that happening over and over again through John's gospel. People just don't get him. They just don't understand him. People think that he's a wise teacher or a human prophet. They think he's come to fix their earthly situations or to fill their physical stomachs. John tells us stories about people who think he wants mere obedience or a million other things. And yet in all of the ways that people misunderstand him, they don't get him, what's happening is that we're actually rejecting him. And I think, honestly, that's where a lot more people find themselves. And I can only assume that that's where a large portion of John's original audience would have found themselves as well. They'd grown up hearing all the stories about Jesus from their parents or reading them in the, in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark and Luke, and yet their lives were not being transformed by those truths because they didn't get it. They did not see him rightly. They didn't understand who he really was. See, here's the reality. If what John says about Jesus is true, if he is the eternal God, the author of all light and life and truth in the universe, then following him is an utterly life-transforming reality. It changes everything about you. You cannot encounter and know the real Jesus, and remain the same. See, for him to just be a side project, a compartment of your life, some little thing on the side, what it reveals is that you do not know him. Because you cannot know the king and creator of the universe and still be the king yourself. That's not how that works. Knowing him transforms us. And God graciously transforms us the more we know him slowly and over time. And he does that full of grace and mercy. But if our lives are not increasingly being transformed by him, then it shows you don't know him at all. You see, and so one way that we could respond to Jesus is by rejecting him, whether overtly or subtly, by just misunderstanding and missing him. But the other, verse 12 and 13, shows us that the way we might respond to him is that we might receive and believe in him. Verse 12 says it this way, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, Jesus gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. John uses the word believe almost a hundred times in the 21 chapters of this gospel. And every single time, it's a verb. It's never a noun. It's never this esoteric faith idea thing somewhere else. It is always an active trust in something. You see, belief is not merely informational, saving faith, true belief. It is always transformational. Yes, to receive and believe in Jesus' name requires that we might agree with who he says that he is, that we might say, yes, Jesus, this is true about you. But it's more than that. See, to receive and to believe in him, it requires that we look, that we trust him as our savior, and that we submit to him as our king, that we welcome him into our lives and give him the rightful place of authority that he is doing them. Saving faith is always changing faith because the object of our faith is the great king and creator of everything. And knowing him transforms you. 
And when we have that kind of a faith in Jesus, two incredible things happen. The first John says is that you get reborn into God's family. And we do not have time to do the deep dive on that this morning, and we're going to see it come up again and again in John's gospel in the coming months. But I just want you to see right now for just a minute, that reality was so profound to John that he never got over it the rest of his life. 1 John, one of the letters that he writes later, he writes it near the very end of his life, and he says it this way. He's still marveling at that reality. He says, how great is the love of the Father that has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God, and that's what we are. That God might adopt us into his family, not because of our race or ethnicity, not based on what we have done or in spite of all that we haven't, that he adopts us into his family, that he gives us a new birth because of him, not because of us. Through faith in Jesus that happens. And the second thing John says is not just that you're adopted into God's family as mind-blowing as that already is. John says, you join John the Baptist and you join John, the author of this gospel, in serving as witnesses to the light. So that through your testimony about the light, others might come to believe the truth about God and they might know him personally. You see, knowing him changes everything. It transforms your identity. It transforms your purpose. It changes everything about you. You cannot be the same and know him. And when you know him, he gives you a new identity, a new calling, a new purpose that you might live for him and for his glory and find the life you are looking for in him. See, that's what we're remembering and celebrating every week when we take communion. Communion is not something that makes you right with God. It doesn't change your status or your standing with Him. Instead, communion is a chance for us to remember, to remind ourselves that in Jesus, God Himself comes near to us, to reveal Himself to us perfectly, to relate to us personally, and to rescue us permanently from the enemies of Satan and sin and death from the fact that we've all rejected him. So if you believed in Jesus to be the author of all things as he is, to be the rescuer king, the the Messiah, the Christ, as John says he is, or you do for the first time this morning, then I want to encourage you during our time of worship, go back and take communion. There's a table on the left and on the right in the back, and you can dip the bread in the juice, and you can take communion that way as a a reminder about Jesus' body and blood, the very God of the universe made flesh for you. But if you're here this morning and you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus, you're still figuring out who he is and what it means for him to be king, what it means that he's the author of all things and how that changes your life, then I just want you to know how welcome you are here and how welcome your questions are and your process is and how welcome you are here in the midst of your doubt and confusion and all of the things in between. And yet at the same time, I want to encourage you, hold off on taking communion. God is not after religious rituals and going through the motions. He is not after a head-level knowledge about him. What he longs for is that we might have a heart-level belief in him that transforms our lives altogether. And so communion, it might not be right for you this morning, but Jesus is. 
and this community is, and we would love to walk with you as you seek him out. As we sing and as we worship God and as we remember the gospel together in song this morning, wherever you're at this morning, I want to encourage you to talk with God. Some of you are here this morning and you have been overtly rejecting Jesus. You hear John's claims that Jesus is not merely a good teacher or example, but that he is the divine author of all life and light and truth, and that feels like sandpaper to you. It grates against you. It rubs you the wrong way in all the ways you can think of, because the reality is, is what's going on in your heart is that Jesus is claiming that he is the king, but you are living as though you are. And there can only be one And the reason that you are here this morning is because Jesus is pursuing you. He is running after you. He is the light that is shining in the midst of your darkness. He's inviting you to come out of the dark and into the light of his glorious grace and truth. Here's the reality. Just like when you are in a dark room and a light gets flicked on, it's uncomfortable. It feels disorienting sometimes. And yet it is true and it is good and it's the thing you are so desperately looking for in everything else. He is the author of all life, including yours. And you only find life in submitting to him as king, in receiving and believing in him. So some of you are here and you're overtly rejecting Jesus and you need to choose to have faith in him for the first time. Others of you, though, you're here and you're like that second way that often people reject him, that you have failed to understand and comprehend who he really is. Maybe like John's original audience, you've grown up in the church, you've heard all the stories about Jesus, and yet what you're realizing this morning is that all you have about him is this head-level knowledge because your life doesn't look any different than anyone who doesn't know him. And you're realizing this morning that if Jesus really is who John says he is, then what he demands is an all-in, entire buy-in to him. If he's just a person, then take his ideas with a grain of salt. Take what you like and leave the rest. But if he is the God of the universe, then it's all or nothing with him. And what you're seeing this morning is that John is inviting you to believe like that, to welcome him in, not to a part of your life, not to a compartment on the side, but to welcome him in with open arms to all of it. To give him the rightful place of authority that he is due. And so some of us reject him. And this morning God's inviting us that we might receive him. And others of you are still here and you have believed in Jesus. You have received him. And yet over time your vision of him has become pitifully small and pathetic. And what you need is for God's spirit through John's gospel to enliven your heart to the kind of cosmic level grandeur of this king and creator. That you might see him not as small and insignificant, but for the glorious author of all creation that he is. That your vision of him might be increasingly accurate to who he really is. You see, here's the reality, church. If your vision of Jesus is small, your worship will always be small. 
And if Jesus is glorious and spectacular to you, if he captivates not just your mind, but if he captivates your heart, oh, then you will, then like you don't have any other choice. What will come out of you is a wholehearted devotion to him. And that's what John is after. That's the whole reason he's writing this gospel, that we might believe the truth about Jesus, that we might give him all of ourselves, and that we might find life in him that you can't find anywhere else. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your word this morning. God, thank you that you are a God who wants to be known and that you have made yourself known over time in all kinds of ways, but that ultimately you do it through the person and the work of Jesus. Thank you that, God, you are not content just to reveal ideas about yourself to us, but you want us to know you. And so we pray this morning as we see Jesus for who he is, that you might make our hearts come alive with faith to that reality. And that it might not just be an informational knowledge that puffs us up, but instead it might be a transformational belief that both humbles us to the floor and yet fills us with love for you to the sky. Might the truth about who you are, Jesus, captivate us in every way. And might it fill us with a love and devotion for you that works itself out in lives given to you wholeheartedly. Help us to receive and believe so that we might bear witness to you. The light. Amen.